Please take your Bibles and turn with me, continuing with our verse-by-verse exposition of 1 Corinthians. And um, we still have another year and a half or so to go. Um, This is the Word of God. We're not picking out what to preach on. We preach on whatever God presents in His Word. We're up to chapter 10 now. We gave the first part of this last week. Because the lesson has to do with what we can learn from history. And as you know, we had Reformation Day. And so we sort of applied the secondary application before we applied the first or the primary application. And we tried to look back and say what the Reformation teaches us. Because the Reformation has to do with God's people. And that's the history of the church. So in chapter 10 in verses 1 through 4, The apostle spells out for us the spiritual privileges and position of the Christians that we'll be looking at in in uh, in this chapter. And now, by way of application, it's important for us to understand that the Bible wasn't just put together haphazardly. God chose everything in the Bible. For a reason. Not the record of every family that ever lived is contained in the Bible. It's only the record of the people God wanted us to know about. And in this passage he tells us he did that so he could teach us something from their lives. So everything we have in scripture was chosen by the great teacher God himself to teach you something. Every part of it. And in verses 1 through 4, the apostle spells out for us the spiritual privileges and position of the Corinthians. He's doing this because you remember chapter 9 and chapter 8 as well, we had some Christians who were arrogant because of their knowledge. They were arrogant, and they were causing weaker brethren and sisters to stumble. And Paul wants to warn them now. He's done it in chapters 8 and 9, but he's coming back to it. And he begins to describe for us the Christian spiritual position. Listen to what he says in verse 1. I don't want you to forget, dear brothers... And sisters, about our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. All of them were guided by a cloud that moved ahead of them, and all of them walked through the sea on dry ground. Now, please focus for a while on the little word all. Because remember, in the closing of chapter 9, he was telling us about a race. A race which all have an opportunity to run. You can participate. But he says, not all will win the prize. Remember that? Only those who keep the rules will get a prize. Those who don't will be disqualified. Now he's going to give an example from history of this truth. 
He's saying in these verses, first of all, that the people of Israel, when they came out of Egypt, they were all redeemed. They were all set free from Egypt. None were left behind. The U.S. Army or Navy have that motto. No man is left behind. No Israelite was left behind. They were all redeemed. All delivered from their state of bondage. And so are we. All of us who have placed faith in Christ. We are all redeemed. Isn't that great? We're redeemed. Set free. From the bondage of sin. The text says all of them. So we can be sure that Paul is talking to Christians. He's not talking to unbelievers. He's talking to those who are redeemed. So right away when we get the idea of disqualification, we know he's not talking about you can be saved and then lost. He's not saying that at all. He's talking about what the Christians can win if they run the race, if they live according to the rules of God, the word of God. He's talking then to the saved, not to the lost. In other words, Paul is talking about rewards here for the Christian. Not salvation. He's talking, not talking about how to be saved or what can keep you saved. But rather he's talking about how to live after you're saved. And we need to know this. I believe that Sometime in our zeal to win people to Christ, we forget to teach them what to do after they come to Christ. You see, Paul is talking about how we are to live after we have become Christians. And he says it's possible that even though all who place faith in Christ have been redeemed, some could be disqualified from receiving Rewards. He even said that himself. He said, I don't want to be a teacher, a preacher, telling you what to do. And then I break the rules and I'm disqualified. He's going to show that Moses was like that. He went right up to the finish line. But he was disqualified because he disobeyed. It's applicable to all. We have to remember that. Sometimes we think that the only thing God is interested in is getting us out of hell. Mm -mm. He's interested in getting Christ in us while we are on earth waiting to go to heaven. The only reason why you and I are here as Christians is because Christ wants to live his life in and through us. That's it. If your salvation and mine, meaning getting saved from hell, was the end purpose for salvation, he would have delivered, he would have taken us to heaven the moment we said yes to Christ. But he's left us here so he could have little Christ populating this earth. But now a second privilege or aspect of our position is that even as the Israelites were identified with Moses, so are we identified with Christ. Notice what it says in verse 2. In the cloud and in the sea. All of them were baptized as followers of Moses. Notice the word all again. They were all redeemed. 
they were all baptized in the cloud and in Moses. Now, we don't, are not going into an excursus on baptism, but I think we've talked about baptism quite a bit. Baptism, the essential meaning of baptism is identification. We are baptized into the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That means we've been identified into everything that happened to him happens to us. Identification, that's what the scripture calls it. And so even as the Israelites were identified with Moses, their leader, we are identified with Jesus Christ ahead of the church. We are in Christ. We are identified with him in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Baptism was and is still a sign of this spiritual identification. Back then, it was identification with the person in whose name you were baptized. You see, the real translation is baptized in the name of Christ, really is baptized into the person or into the name of Christ. In other words, we were associating ourselves completely with our leader. That's what happened to the children of Israel. They were completely identified with the chosen leader that God had given them, Moses. They followed him right through the Red Sea. Now we are identified with Jesus Christ. All of us, the emphasis on all, all have been redeemed, all have been identified with Jesus Christ. But then he gives a third blessing. We are all nourished by Christ. In verse 3 it says, And all of them ate of the same spiritual food. Do you see that? All of them ate of the same spiritual food. Now we're going to see that that food, that manna from heaven, was a picture of the bread of Christ. The bread of life, Jesus Christ. The water they drank. It's a picture of Christ, the water of life. They were all nourished spiritually by the person of Jesus Christ. So are we. We are nourished by Christ. It says in verse 4, all of them drank the same spiritual drink. The emphasis is on all. For they were all drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. And I love this. That rock was Christ. I love that. All nourished by Christ. When we come to observe the Lord's Supper, that's what we are symbolizing. We are being nourished by what Christ did for us and how he's alive in our life. The Lord's Supper is a picture of our participating in the accomplishments of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are nourished by him. I like to call this passage Christ. The walking water. See, that rock that followed them was Jesus. Now, please, don't get in your mind's eye when, walk, when rock walking. You know, this walk got two feet or four feet or eight feet. You're not talking about. It's just something say Christ was with them all along the way. He was with them all along the way. Christ was with them all along the way. The rock was Jesus Christ. These verses tell us three things about the children of Israel and as a nation. First, they were all supernaturally delivered. So are we. Amen? They were delivered from Egypt. 
through the Red Sea. That's redemption. That's always mentioned in the Old Testament. So are we. They were delivered through water. We were delivered by blood. The blood of Jesus Christ. Secondly, they were all supernaturally led and directed. The cloud, the day, the pillar of fire by night. Supernatural deliverance, supernatural direction. All here, all took part in it. We are supernaturally led today. How? Through the word of God and through the Holy Spirit. We are supernaturally led. If we as members of the body of Christ or as a church look for direction from anyone or anything else other than the word of God or the Holy Spirit, we're going in the wilderness. We're going in the wilderness. They were supernaturally delivered they were supernaturally led and directed. And thirdly, they were supernaturally nourished by Jesus Christ. The bread of life and the water of life. So are we. In fact, right now, when the word of God is read from and actually preached, do you know what happens? Jesus is nourishing you. You see, this is why this is such, a, and I repeat it again, this is why this is such a vital, vital, vital Event that we're taking part in right now. We've been nourished. We've been nourished by the Word of God, the bread of life. But now, suppose I try to put my own elements in this bread. I say, you know, I look at this word here, the boy that says some things I don't like. So, you know what? I can put my own ingredients in this bread. And I can mix it in so you like it. You know what happens? It's not the word of God anymore. It's my word. And unfortunately that's happening today. A lot of people are eating bread that they think is the bread of life. But it's being mixed in with human elements, ingredients. And they're getting the word of man rather than the word of God. So this is our position in Christ, and all Christians share these fantastic spiritual privileges. And these are the basis for our freedom to live the Christian life, apart from legalism or human rules and traditions. That's what Paul, remember now, don't lose sight of that, is fighting with the Corinthians. Eating meat and all of that stuff. But you see, some of the Corinthians were boasting in their position and they were abusing these spiritual blessings. They were abusing them rather than using them for the glory of God and their spiritual growth. They were abusing it and hurting others. In other words, they were, as we will see in a moment, were on the verge of tempting God. Even as the people of Israel did in the wilderness. The Corinthians believed that they could push the envelope. Because they were secure in Christ. Because they had all of these blessings. Boy, that gives me freedom to do a lot of things. They believed that they could go anywhere, do anything, eat anything. Because they were eternally secured because of the blessings they had in Christ. They were abusing their redemptive position. 
We have some Christians living like that. In fact, even in the book of Romans, some were saying, hey, sin, Paul says that grace abounds much more where sin abounds. Then you know what I can do? I can sin as much as I can. Because the more I sin, the more God's glory is going to be manifested in my life. You say, nobody argues that. Oh, yeah. That's what Paul fights in Romans 6. People think that today. People go out, my wife doesn't please me, my husband doesn't please me, God understands, so I can have an affair. That's what they say. God understands. Like, that's such big news. Tell me something God don't understand. He understands it has been sin, though. Sin. They believe that they could live as close as they want, up to the very edge of ungodliness and pagan behavior, and still go to heaven. After all, that's all that counted, isn't it? Go to heaven. Paul is saying, no, 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 that's not all that matters. Is living a holy life. And so he is giving us a historical lesson in holiness. Paul goes on to warn us of the danger of spiritual arrogance and unbridled liberty because of these privileges. Paul is saying, history is telling you, history of God's people, history is telling you to beware of making the same mistakes your forefathers did. Don't be ignorant, unaware of their failures, or you could repeat their history in your life. And your spiritual caucuses, to use the King James language, could be thrown over a wilderness life. If you don't heed the lesson of your forefathers. Look at verse 5 now. Because it, Paul now deals with the spiritual temptations or the temptations of the Christian. The same temptations were present with the forefathers. And it boils down to one thing. They wanted to live so as not to please God, but self. That's what Terence was talking about today. Verse 5, nevertheless, nevertheless, in other words, in spite of all of these blessings that they had, all of these supernatural things they experienced, redemption, nourishment, guidance, all of those things, nonetheless, with most of them, notice it is. Now, up to this time, we were looking at what? All of them. Now, he says, with most of them. Now, actually, when you get right down to it, it was most of most of them. Because only about two out of nearly two million people actually went to finish time. So Paul is saying basically that the overall sin was that they lived to please themselves, not the God who redeemed them so that they might worship him. By the way, that's the purpose of redemption. That's what it says about the children of Israel. Remember what Moses, God told Moses to say, let my people go. Why? So that they might worship me. That's what redemption is for. To make us worshipers of the true and living God. You see? 
So Paul is saying here that their overall sin was that they lived to please themselves, not the God who redeemed them. Now notice carefully though. Although all enjoyed the same privileges and opportunities to please God and to get into the promised land, most of them did not. This is a lesson from history, mind you. Don't let's turn this around. Don't let's say here that most of those who profess to be Christians are going to finish. He didn't say that. He only say some of them. That's the lesson, mind. That's, that's the history lesson. It's not the crowds, but it's the few who follow the rules. The King James Version says, their carcasses fell in the wilderness. In other words, to use the word of Paul in chapter 9, that he is illustrating their disqualified lives were strewn all over the course that led to the promised land. They were disqualified. That's why their carcasses were strewn all over the promised land, over the wilderness. They were disqualified. Unable to receive a well done thou good and faithful servant. Now this is a warning. That's what it says. For all of us who think we are strong and safe from disqualification because we're safe and we got some scripture in our heads. Paul is teaching here that that is not so. We may and can be saved. But we can still live so as not to please God in our lives. And we could be disqualified from hearing him say, I am pleased with you. You have finished the race. You have kept the course. Most, most oppressing of professing believers will not hear those words. According to this lesson from history. Now, of course, I could change that. And they say, well, you know, that, that, that's only Paul talking. No, no, no. This is God speaking here, and he says this. But then Paul goes on to describe some of the rules of the game that our forefathers disregarded. They broke and caused them to be thrown over the wilderness. Verse 6, notice what it says. These things happened as a warning to us. Now, what is the first thing that verse tells us? It tells us that the things happened. So why is that important? This lesson is based on historical facts. These things happened. He doesn't say this is an illustration, this is a story. He's not even saying this is a parable. These things happened. He's relating historical events. Listen, friends, the Old Testament is not just stories to entertain children. It's a record of actual historical events, things that happened. 
And this lesson on holiness that he's teaching here is based on historical facts, not some old... Now please excuse me, this is Bible 2, wives fable. As Paul says in 1 Timothy, or miss. No, 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 no. These things happened. The Old Testament, as well as the New, is the inspired word of God. God breathed out his thoughts into words. And they've been written down for our learning and edification and to equip us to be vessels usable for the Master. That's what holiness is, being set apart for use by a holy God. These things happened. Take the Old Testament seriously, even the genealogies. We're going through a series now in Genesis on Echoes of Calvary, and we're seeing how important this is. But secondly, these things happened for a reason. What is the reason? Notice what the word says. These things happened as a warning. Notice. He isn't saying these things happened to comfort us. I wish it did. Because I know it will please a lot of us, you know, because all of us come here to church. Oh, I come for a blessing today. That means you want to hear something, God, just yeah. I love you, and I don't care what you're doing. I still love you. And that's true, you know. But he also hates what you're doing. The Old Testament is important for our spiritual growth. A warning. A red flag. And those warnings are as true for the people of Corinth I'll limp it around. Those warnings are as true for us as they were for the people at Corinth. It's a warning what happened. This tells us then that we should know the Old Testament as well as the New. Because all Scripture is what? Profitable. All Scripture. That means the Old Testament as well. Although this particular one refers particularly to the Old Testament. All of God's word is profitable for teaching, instruction, and so on. But now exactly what do these events that happened warn us of? What is so important that God would divinely and supernaturally design the history of his people in the past so that it would impact his people today to make us holy? Because that's what he's doing. God chose this curriculum. For purpose. And the purpose is warning. Verse 6. So that we would not crave evil things as they did. The first thing. All the Old Testament that God has picked out, chosen. I like that word, picking out. All of the stories that God, the events that God has chosen to put in the Old Testament. Is being taught was meant to teach us not to crave evil things as they did. Isn't that what the word says? 
There's a spiritual danger of craving evil things. Again, I believe this is a general overall statement that underscores the root cause of a Christian's disobedience to God. Selfish cravings. Selfish cravings. That underlines our disobedience to God. We don't want to do what God says for God's glory. We want to do what we want to be done for our good. James talks about this. Listen to what he says in James chapter 4. What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? He's talking to Christians, mind. He's talking to unregenerate pagan people. He's talking about Christians who go to church. In fact, this letter was sent to people to read in the church. What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? You know, I know, man. Believers don't quarrel and fight, eh? As I've been told just this past week of what some leaders have done to one of their own. And I don't think you'd be able to find that even in some unsaved businesses. So don't talk about it. Don't happen to professing Christians. This is what God is warning us of through this story. What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? Not from outside. You want what you don't have. Evil desire. So you scheme and kill to get it. That's what's going on in the Bahamas now with all this violence and everything. This is the root cause for all of our violence right here. Selfish desires to have what you belong to you and you shouldn't have. You are jealous of what others have. But you can't get it. And so you fight and you wage war to take it away from them. That's almost describing what's going on in Nassau. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it. Because your motives are all wrong. You want only what give you pleasure. That's evil desires. That's craving things that you shouldn't have and God doesn't want you to have. But you crave it nonetheless. God says I've written the Old Testament to warn you not to have those cravings. Evil desires have the origin in our inherent selfishness. That puts self and things before God. Paul says, this leads secondly to idolatry. Notice what he says. Greed always leads to idolatry. In fact, he says greed is idolatry. Or worship idols, as some of them did. As the scripture said, the people celebrated with feasting and drinking, and they indulged in pagan revelry. Now, don't push this verse off the pagan worship of false gods that has nothing to do with us as Christians. Because you say, see, they, they, they worship in idols. You're talking about pagans. Well, that's true. But remember now, Paul was using this as a warning to Christians. What were the children of Israel doing? They, when Moses up there getting the Ten Commandments, what did they do? What do they do? They made a golden calf. And they worshipped. Did they worship the calf? 
Did they worship the God? All of us say they worship the God. And that's true. But you know, in their minds, they weren't worshiping the God. Read the text carefully. They said, this is the God who brought us out of Egypt. Far as they were concerned, they were worshiping Yahweh. As far as they were concerned. Now, Paul is going to come around and say, oh, you might have think that's what you're doing, but you are actually worshiping idols, pagan. But as far as they were concerned, they thought that was all right. Because that's the God who brought them out of Egypt. You say, why am I emphasizing that? Simple. Because a lot of this is going on today. Some religions, in fact, make this a major thing. They worship the idols, but they say what? You're not worshiping the idols. You were, it's a means to help us to worship. Now, if that were true, God would have said, hey, that's okay. You're using this calf as a means to worship me. Great. Hey, hey. No, no, no. He killed him for it. Their actions showed that who they were worshipping was not a holy God. Look at the orgies that are described here. But yet, they thought they were pleasing God. They really did. Feasting and drinking here are pagan ways to worship the God they had concocted themselves. You see, they had concocted their own God. They had made that to believe that this concocted God was a true God. But it wasn't. You will see a lot of this being duplicated not only in churches, with the worship of idols or statues or whatever, but you will see a lot of this being duplicated in just a few weeks. When we celebrate Christmas. You know what's going to characterize the celebration of Christmas? Not worship. Drunkenness. Revelry. Immorality. And greed. But all of the people, at least most of them, are going to be doing it in the name Of celebrating the birth of Christ. They're going to feel good about their orgies. Why? Because man, I'm only doing this to celebrate the birth of Christ. See, that's the kind of thing he's talking about here. That's idolatry. Putting these things before the true God. And pretending in your own mind that it is the true God. The sad thing is that many professing Christians will be involved just like professing pagans. People who say they know God, but act as though they do not exist, especially around Christmas time. Paul says that the past history of God's people in the wilderness is a warning to his people of the day not to repeat the behavior of their fathers. It wasn't pleasing to God then, it isn't pleasing to God now. And we could try to compromise, we could try to sugarcoat it all we like. But God still says, it's a craving after sinful pleasures. 
Verse 8, and we must not engage in sexual immorality as some of them did, causing 23,000 of them to die in one day. See, that's how God responds to that kind of a lifestyle. Judgment. Sexual immorality will be prevalent over the holidays. And all of it in the name of celebrating Christmas. People will get drunk in the name of celebrating Christmas. Paul is reminding them that these things happened and the people of God were delivered from Egypt. It happened as a warning to us not to let it happen now. God responded in judgment then. He responds the same today if there's no repentance and if we fail to live a life of holiness. But there's still another warning the happenings have that these happenings have for us. Verse 9. Nor should we put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and they died from snake bites. Putting Christ to the test simply means, in today's lingo, stretching his patience to the limit. You see, God wants to cause us, to lead us to repentance through his love. But if we don't respond that and we abuse his love, then God has to minister to us in judgment. And that's what God did. Look what he did, all those supernatural things, all those wonderful things. They had food. In fact, they had so much of it, they got tired of it. They had to worry about clothes. It never wore out. Isn't that right? God gave them everything. They could get up in the morning. Where are we going to go? See the cloud? Begin to look in the night. How in the world are we going to find our way to see the fire? Everything they needed. But they abused it. They didn't see the goodness of God. At all. all they and they stretched God's patience to the limit. Now they're questioning whether they will die in the wilderness because they don't have the kind of food or they have the kind of drink they want. God answered their protest by, oh, come sit down, let me, let's talk, see what kind of food you want. Mm-mm, he sent snakes with them. That's what he did. Form of judgment. Then he mentions another sin. And don't grumble as some of them did. <laughs> and then were destroyed by the angel of death for grumbling. King James says, murmuring. In context, it simply means a constant complaint against the way God was doing things. That's what it means. Ongoing complaining against God the way he was doing things. Christians don't do that today, hey. Sure you do it. You know why we do it? Because we haven't learned the lesson from history. God destroyed them.
Although God has led them through, provided for them, given everything that they possibly can need for sustenance, they were still complaining, things ain't going my way. God, I wouldn't do it that way. I wouldn't have given manna manna. I'd have sent some ravens with a steak or something. That's right. They want to go back there. The leeks and the garlics. They were complaining, complaining, even though they had everything they needed. They grumbled about the food. They grumbled about the water. They grumbled about clothes. And all God, although God had supplied, but they still grumbled. That's unfortunately like some of God's people today. We have a perfect, beloved, we have a perfect, complete, fantastic redemption in Christ. We have a position in Christ, sealed, ratified, and secured by the triune God. We have all things that pertain to life and to godliness, and yet we still have murmurous and grumblers in the church. That's why I'm glad I'm not God. Now, for one thing, I probably won't be him himself. I'd probably be the first one I judge. But folks, I want you to miss the seriousness of this. God is saying these sins were so terrible, he chose them out of all of the history of his people to warn us so we won't do it ourselves. Why? Because we could be judged as well. We have this perfect salvation, but we have people who grumble about the food. Especially the food. You say, Pastor Lee, you take too long to cook the food. Pastor Lee, man, you don't talk about the sweet part of the food. The food, the food too long to take. You got too many different things. Man, they, they just go on and go on. We still grumble about those things, only in different ways. Only in different ways. Don't talk about going to gathering the mana. Mana, I got to go all day long to pick it up. Even if I do it myself, to cook the food of the word, to get the food, the bread of life, and I got to cook it myself to get it. Man, it takes too long, too much time. I don't know how to cook anyway. I don't know how to do Bible study. I don't know how to read the Bible. Uh, you know, besides, I gotta watch my favorite TV program. I can't take no time away from that to go cook my food of the bread of life. We still grumble over the food. We still grumble over the water. We still grumble over how God takes care of us. We get a little tough time. We get a little difficulty in our life. We're facing it today. And all of a sudden, we, God forgot me, eh? Now, he took care of you for 50 years, you know. He did everything you want. But now, perhaps you have a little problem for one week, two months. Where's God? God left me? God don't love me? What do you think he was doing with you for the last 50 years? And I'll end with this one. I haven't finished, but I'll end. They grumbled about the leaders. 
They went to Moses. Mo- God, no, oh, Moses, look, he can't even choose the right wife. Why let him choose that woman? She ain't part of us. She's of a different background. You know, that's a big fight, right? But they tried to guise it. Listen, God, you chose this leader. You didn't choose too good. Miriam, I'm a little better leader than them, than he is. And what is what is uh, Miriam and Aaron? The better leader. Now, now notice who we're talking about now. The manager, the divine manager, God himself. All wise God chose Moses to be a leader. These two people came. God, you didn't choose right. Now, that's why I'm glad I ain't God. Because why not slap them down right there? God did do that. What did Moses do? Moses said, to see my battle. This is God's battle. God fought for Moses. And Moses' position was challenged. And you know what happened. Leprosy and all that stuff. God always does that. If God chooses a leader, a leader doesn't have to fight to maintain his position. God will do it. That's the lesson that is taught here for us in this passage. And there are many more. We'll pick it up next week, Lord willing. But listen, my friends. The Bible wasn't just written for us to have fun with and to see his stories. Biblical history is written for our learning and to help us to be holy people by not craving after evil desires. Are we getting the lesson? Or are we going to repeat history? You know the saying goes, if you don't know history, you can repeat it. God help us not to repeat the history that God has given us as a warning. Amen? Amen. Amen. 